0: Our scripture lesson this morning is drawn from the book of Daniel, chapter 6. I'll start in the first verse of chapter 5. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be over the whole kingdom, and over these three governors, of whom Daniel was one, that the satraps might give account to them so that the king would suffer no loss. Then this Daniel distinguished himself above the governors and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. So the governors and satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could find no charge or fault, because he was faithful, nor was there any error or fault found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any charge against this Daniel unless we find it against him concerning the law of his God. So these governors and satraps thronged before the king and said thus to him, King Darius, live forever. All the governors of the kingdom, the administrators and satraps, the counselors and advisors, have consulted together to establish a royal statute and to make a firm decree that whoever petitions any god or man for 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing, so that it cannot be changed, according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which does not alter. Therefore, King Darius signed the written decree. Now, when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home, and in his upper room, with his windows open towards Jerusalem, He knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since early days. Then these men assembled and found Daniel praying and making supplication before his God. And they went before the king and spoke concerning the king's decree Have you not signed a decree that every man who petitions any god or man within thirty days, except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing is true according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which does not alter. So they answered and said before the king, That Daniel, who is one of the captives from Judah, does not show due regard for you, O king, or for the decree that you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. And the king, when he heard these words, was greatly displeased with himself and set his heart on Daniel to deliver him, and he labored till the going down of the sun to deliver him. Then these men approached the king and said to the king, "'Know, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and Persians "'that no decree or statute which the king establishes may be changed.' "'So the king gave the command, "'and they brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions. "'But the king spoke, saying to Daniel, "'Your God, whom you serve continually, he will deliver you.' "'Then a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den.' And the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signets of his lords, that the purpose concerning Daniel might not be changed. Now the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting, and no musicians were brought before him. Also his sleep went from him. Then the king arose very early in the morning and went in haste to the den of lions, And when he came to the the den, he cried out with a lamenting voice to Daniel. The king spoke, saying to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, So that they have not hurt me, because I was found innocent before him. And also, O king, I have done no wrong before you. Now the king was exceedingly glad for him, and commanded that he should take Daniel up out of the den. That they should take Daniel up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no injury whatever was found on him, because he believed in his God. And the king gave the command, and they brought those men who had accused Daniel, and they cast them into the den of lions, them, their children, and their wives. And the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces before they ever came to the bottom of the den. Then King Darius wrote, To all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom, men must tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and steadfast forever. His kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed, and his dominion shall endure to the end. He delivers and rescues, and he works signs and wonders in heaven and on the earth, and who has delivered Daniel from the power of the lions." So this Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you go to the Ark Encounter, a ministry by answers in Genesis, there is on, if I remember correctly, the lowest level, an interesting little room. You've seen the Ark, and you've seen all the presentations, and you're coming close to the end, but you've got this kind of library-esque little room where there's all these books by many, many different publishers that are all about the Ark. They're children's books, and they're all bright and happy. They've got cute little arcs in the cover with a smiling Noah... And there's all these cuddly little animals on the arcs. And uh, it's amazing how this basic presentation can be so multiplied that you can have all these books there showing this, this pretty, happy, childlike picture of the world's first apocalypse where millions of people died and only eight people survived. And that is answers in Genesis' point about the room, this is, this is really very macabre. We, we, we take this foreshadowing of the end of the world, this, this doom of millions of people, and, and we paint our children's nurseries with bright little glowing colors and happy little pictures of little arcs dancing on the waves. Uh, we do that with not just the flood. We do that with this story, too. Daniel in the lion's den. How many bright, cheery, little children's books could we find that would have on the cover a smiling prophet, obviously in in a cave, but, but a nice little cave, and all around him are these cuddly, cheerful little lions, Daniel in the lion's den. This is a brutal and gruesome story. This is a, a historical account of uh, man's inhumanity to man with lots of people dying in really very nasty kind of ways, um, munched down by lions who have been starved into uh, homicidal violence. sorry. Um, oh, that's okay. Uh, to I accidentally press the off button because it looks mine, and I don't. I, I'm sorry. I oh, it's okay. I, I'm I'm curious. What's going on? If if the building's on fire, I want to know. Um, Thank you. But anyway, you've got you've got this 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 dark story, and it's a historical event, and we make pretty little books for our kids about it. It's um, it's Macabre, just kind of like the flood. It is, however, one of the most historically accurate presentations that you would ever imagine. In Daniel's early life, his three friends ended up in a deadly encounter. They were what? What happened to them? They weren't fed to lions. What happened to Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego? Yeah, they got put in a furnace. Uh, The Babylonians did that. If they really wanted to give you a hard time, this was the Babylonian answer like for the Assyrians impaling and for the Romans' crucifixion. It was their thing. They would throw you into a fiery furnace and listen to you shout. Babylon just got conquered, though, by the Persians. And the Persians are Zoroastrians and one of the doctrines of Zoroastrianism is that Ahura Mazda, their prime god, is very, very anti pollution. And he is angry about the pollution of any elements earth, air, water, or fire. In Zoroastrianism, you can't burn people to death because that pollutes fire. So what do you do if you want to execute people? Well, you feed them to animals because that gets rid of all the pollution. There's nothing left. And so the the writer of the Book of Daniel, who, according to liberalism, was trying to write a pamphlet about historical events that were happening about 150 years before the birth of Christ and basically making stuff up knew how Babylonians worked uh, all those hundreds of years ago and then knew enough to make the distinction that Persians wouldn't act that way and in fact would be perfectly historically accurate about the two cultures because that's what happens when you're making stuff up, right? Right. Obviously not. It's a historical event, and we're hearing about it from the pen of the guy who suffered it. Daniel knows all about Persian culture because he was, in fact, in the lion's den. But this is a book of historical sketches. Um, you got 12 chapters. There are basically 10 historical sketches in the life of Daniel. And Daniel's life is really, really long. At the start of the book of Daniel, he is just a youth, a youngin'. By this point, Daniel's pushing 90, and we've only traveled six chapters. So, under the Holy Spirit's guidance, Daniel has written to you six historical events in his life, but by the time you get to be 90, you've had a number of things happen to you, and selecting the six is going to be kind of tough unless you have divine guidance, which he does. But you still have to ask the question, why does the Holy Spirit pick this event? What is the Spirit really trying to show us? There's all kinds of things that Daniel's had happen, and we don't know anything about them. Why did the Spirit choose this one? Well, there are really... Ten things that stand out to me, and I don't put this word as exhaustive at all. But uh, what what does this event show? Well, the first one shows that the first thing that we see is pagan government, and there really is only two types of government taking place on Earth at this time. Not Daniel's time. I'm talking about our time, and literally all the time of humanity living on Earth there's really only two types of government that ever happen. There is pagan government, government separated from the true God, the Holy Trinity, and there is government that is in obedience to the true God. And you see very, very little of that in time in history. It shows up occasionally in the Church of God, but not even there most of the time. Most government among men is pagan government, and pagan government is really well described as war by other means. That's not a a theological comment, that's actually a political science comment that has been made for hundreds and hundreds of years. What is happening when governments govern? Well, They're exerting coercive force to get their way and usually you have more than one faction involved and they're negotiating perhaps, but they're also stabbing each other in the back and they're scheming and they're trying to to get their plot through. Um, It's war without the guns. It's war without the swords, or at least used differently. In this particular case, the war is over. Now let the war begin. Babylon has conquered the known world. It has risen higher than any nation had ever at that time, and it had just been conquered by Persia, who now owns the known world. But the end of the war is not the end of conflict. You win the war. Now you have to organize the world. Uh, Cyrus, who is the emperor of Media Persia, places Darius over the throne of Babylon. He won't be there that long. Uh, Cyrus will take over and rule directly, really just in a few years. And that makes sense because Babylon was the great enemy, and if you want to keep your greatest enemy down, absorbing it into Persia is kind of the way to go. But for right now, Cyrus puts Darius over the, the throne And you gotta organize the world the way you want it, and that opens the door to lawfare. That's a a modern way of putting it, but uh, politics is lawfare. It is using law to fight wars. And we watch that take place. It is when you use the law in proxy to your sword, your spear, and your bomb, and uh, alliances happen. Uh, political factions happen. We were just talking about this earlier in Bible study. Men break into factions. They break into scheming groups. And as Darius organizes his kingdom under Cyrus, uh, little scheming groups appear and they want their way and uh, they're willing to kill for it. There's a a fascinating Aramaic term that shows up twice in our text. In verse 6, and I believe it is uh, verse 11. Uh, Well, it's actually verse 12. It's right at the beginning of verse 12. Um, The New King James says, So these governors and satraps thronged before the king and said thus to him, And then in 12, it's the same thing in in the Aramaic. And they went before the king and spoke concerning the king's decree. In the New American Standard Bible, in both places, it uses the phrase, they met by agreement and did this. The the term, when the New King James uses the word throng, it's wanting you to picture them all kind of rushing the king and kind of bum-rushing him, kind of trying to get them to get him to do what they want him to do. They have met together as an alliance, and they have made plots, and now they're springing this on Darius and trying to get their way. Uh, both translations get at the, the heart of the Aramaic term. This is lawfare. This is people meeting in, in back rooms, making deals, now springing a plot, Uh, Darius is kind of overwhelmed by it, and he's king. That's how government works, and uh, the Holy Spirit wants you to see it happening. This is is what men do when they rule. Uh, The second thing I think that the Holy Spirit wants us to see is that pagan people, separate from God covenantally, nevertheless can know that pagan government is unjust and they can try to do something about it. We meet for the first time in scripture the concept of the law of the Medes and Persians. It is likely that the reason why we remember it historically is because it is here in the book of Daniel. It's an amazing thing. The Medes and Persians are pagan people. They're outside of the covenant of God they have merged together. It's kind of a, a, an England and Scotland kind of thing. And upon their merger, one of the things they wanted to do was they wanted to make a equitable law. They knew that rule by fiat was usually not equitable. And that was kind of the way kings ruled. And so out of their deliberations came the law of the Medes and the Persians. And that was supposed to make law just and equitable if a king made a law, he couldn't turn around and say, nah, I didn't mean that, which did happen a lot. And the Medes and Persians said, that's not just. We we can't have kings just going back on their word and doing anything they want to do. That's that's injustice. So we're going to have the law of the Medes and Persians. We're going to reform law, and we're going to make it stick. If a king makes a law he himself has got to abide by it because we need to reform the law. That's what's happening. Unfortunately, as Solomon puts in Ecclesiastes, what is lacking cannot be counted and what is twisted cannot be straightened. When pagan people, devoid of the Holy Spirit, attempt to reform law, it usually stays unreformed even though you have well-meaning people trying to do good things. Uh, In this particular case, what is twisted that men can do evil? Well, ironically, it is specifically the law of the Medes and the Persians. It is the reform itself is used for lawfare by evil people to do evil things because, quite frankly, human law can't be fixed, in, in this corrupt world, everything's corrupt. And so the very reforming movement itself becomes what is used to do evil. Fascinatingly, I think we see here in Scripture that in the ranking of authorities, the human king is number three. Now, you would think if you were king, you'd be number one, but that is not the way it's presented. Years ago, there was a TV show that became a cult classic, and it still has amazing ardent supporters. It's called The Prisoner, and it's one of my favorites, and if you become friends with me very closely, uh, I lock you in a room and I make you watch it. It's just one of those things. But it's, it's one of the greatest TV shows I've ever been on, and it takes on the issue, how does political power actually work? And uh, you've got the man who's in charge of, quote, the village, the social setting of the show. Everyone is given a number. Their name is taken away, but they have a number, and it talks about their, their level of authority. And the guy who's in charge is not number one, he is number two. And all the way through the TV show, the main guy who's focused on is trying to figure out who number one is, because the guy running the village is number two, so who is number one? Well, it turns out that number one is basically popular human opinion coming out of human nature. You may be the ruler, but you're not actually in charge. You're number two, but you You answer to human nature, to opinion, to the will of the mob. That's number one. And that's actually a very profound thought. But here in Daniel, uh, while the king is subject to these men who trick him, he's not number two, he's actually number three. Because one of the things that Daniel has been showing us through all these events is who is really the king? Who is really in charge? Who is making things happen? Well, at the very end of this chapter, what is it that Darius says? Well, it's it's very similar to what uh, Nebuchadnezzar said. Um, the God of Daniel, quote, "...he is the living God and steadfast forever." His kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed, and his dominion shall endure to the end. He delivers and rescues, and he works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. Who has delivered Daniel from the power of the lions? Uh, It's not subtle. Daniel is telling us, if you want to know who is really number one, that's God in heaven. And he's number one over heaven, he's number one over earth, he's number one over everything that happens on earth. You may not understand what he's doing, but God is number one, and Darius is certainly not number one. Darius isn't even number two. Human nature, with its uh, plotting and sinful desires, uh, the will of evil people with petty interests, that's actually number two. And you, king, you're a measly number three. You, you, you get twisted around. This is probably because of the nature of human law. In the Midweek Bible study, we're going through the law of Moses, and Moses' law is from the Spirit of God. It reflects God's Spirit. It reflects his nature Again, there are places in Moses' law where when you read it, you go, I don't understand how that works. That seems mean or petty or cruel. But when you begin to dig into it, you realize, no, it isn't any of those things. It's really striking my flesh. God is righteous. God is good. God is holy because the law reflects God's nature. Well, that's because it's the law of God. The the, uh, clue is in the name. What about human law? Where does that come from? Well, it comes from human nature, and human nature is petty. Human nature is ambitious. Human nature is violent. So what is human law going to look like? It's going to look like that because it comes out of that. And what kind of law do we see put before King Darius? We, we want to we make a law for you, for us. <laughs> um, what kind of law is it? Well, we just thought it would be really cool if everybody worshipped you for 30 days and nobody else. So, so I come to you and I say, here's what I want. I really want it. I think it would be really great. Uh, let's set up so that literally everyone around you worships you for 30 days. You know, really, if you think about it, this is about as petty and vile and ugly as you can get, and Darius goes, yeah, sounds good. It's the flesh. The flesh is attracted by this because human law is based on human pride, arrogance, egoism. Uh, That's what he does. That's his bread and butter, and he's just wrapped up in it, and Being worshiped is perfectly okay. In fact, there is no clearer picture in Scripture than this that human law has no problem at all competing with God. King Darius, we want a law, a a law over your kingdom that men will worship you, the king. Okay, great, sounds good. What is that but competition with God? The king does that. Darius does that. He has no problem doing that. Caesar wants to be worshipped. It was a Reformed scholar years ago who said, you know, you want to wrap up the entire book of Revelation in one statement? Uh, don't trust your government. Now, there's more in Revelation than that, but that is a major theme of it, and the reason why it's a major theme is Caesar wants to be worshipped. He wants to compete with God And here you see the clearest example of it in Darius. And it's his pettiness that allows him to be captured. Instead of being in control, Darius is actually uh, caught in a snare by his own pride, his own uh, egoism, and that's kind of the way lawfare works. Sixth, The Holy Spirit is doing a very good job here showing us that totally depraved people are not necessarily utterly depraved people. And there is a distinction. When the Reformed Church talks about human character, we tell you that man is totally depraved. Well, what do we mean by that? Well, a lot of people hear us saying man is absolutely, utterly depraved, he gets up in the morning and the first thought he has is, how can I do evil? I mean, that's just really what I want to do. I want to do evil and I'm an ogre. I'm going to grab my club. I'm going to hurt somebody before breakfast because that's what we do. Well, that's not what people generally are. Uh, You might have a few of those, but they're sociopaths. The average person doesn't do that. But, In everything he does and thinks, there is sin. It is not that he is sinful to the uttermost, because most people aren't. It is that when you begin to examine everything that a man does and says and thinks, there is some sin in it. And King Darius, the unconverted man, at least unconverted to the end of the event, is a very good example of this. He is angry at being caught in his own petty uh, egoism so when he gets a chance to be free from it he grabs those who have hurt him and puts them to death, which is probably a just thing to do, but he doesn't just put them to death, he puts their wives and their children to death and that might seem just a little excessive. Well, the truth is it is excessive. Uh, let's compare this to another passage uh, in Scripture. Let's go to 2 Chronicles, chapter 25, if I remember correctly. Uh, here, in the first couple of verses of chapter 25 of 2 Chronicles, we read this about a king by the name of Amaziah. Amaziah was 25 years old when he began to reign and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother was Jehoshadan of Jerusalem. He did right in the Lord's sight, but not with a perfect or blameless heart. When his kingdom was firmly established, he slew his servants who had killed the king, his father. But he did not slay their children. He did, as it is written in the law in the book of Moses, Where the Lord commanded, the father shall not die for the children, nor the children die for the fathers, but every man shall die for his own sin. Now, the Chronicler has set us up to show us Amaziah is not going to walk faithfully all the way through. But at the beginning, he wants to show us he does walk faithfully at the beginning. And what should stand out to us is his father has been murdered, He now has a chance to avenge his father, and he follows God's law, even though he could wipe out their whole family, which is kind of the way things are done in the ancient world. He keeps his hand from doing that, and he does it because God's law has said don't. And in fact, that's true. When you go back to Deuteronomy, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 24 and verse 16, which is quoted in the chronicle passage, It reads, fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor shall children be put to death for their fathers. A person shall be put to death for his own sins. So uh, we're meant to feel sympathy for Darius, but Darius absolutely is bloodthirsty. He murders all these people that God's law says don't. But we see him being concerned for Daniel. Uh, He wants Daniel as a uh, second-in-command servant, but you also get the idea he likes Daniel. He realizes that injustice has been done. He wants to find some way to stop the injustice. Uh, When he finally puts Daniel into the lion's den, he says, your God will protect you. We don't know if he means that or not, and when we see him the next morning... We're certainly not sure if he means it because he's really concerned and he cries out, you know, Daniel, has God protected you? And he's really sorrowful. And Daniel says, yep, I'm here. But we're meant to feel sympathy for Darius. He has good qualities. But even the best of unconverted people are cruel and vicious and petty. Conversion really makes a difference. And Darius is probably an example of a good king, who, if he gets mad at you, will kill your wife, your children, your dog, and burn your house, because that's the way people are. That's the way people rule, and Darius is totally depraved. He's not utterly depraved. There's some goodness there, but in everything he does, there is sin, and we see that in him. The most significant point that I think the Spirit is making, though, will be summed up by Augustine uh, several hundred years later, nearly a, a millennia later, when Augustine makes the comment, an unjust law is no law. That's a striking statement, but it's true. John Knox said resistance to tyrants is service to God, and he was effectively echoing Augustine's sentiment. Uh, In fact, actually, in the Reformed Confessional material, a version of that statement makes its way into the Scots Confession, which was the Presbyterian Confession before the Westminster Assembly convened. Uh, It was confessionally Reformed to say Resistance to tyrants is service to God. Where would we get that? Well, uh, we would get it from passages like here. Look at what is said in verse 21 through 23. Daniel has been put in the lion's den. He's been there all night. The king cries out and says, Daniel, are you still there? And he's expecting to hear nothing, but Daniel responds and says, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths. So God has acted. God has protected Daniel. Daniel has had no ability to protect himself, but God has done something in time and space. He has sent his angel, shut the lion's mouths so they did not hurt me because one, I was found innocent before him, and two, And also, O king, I have done no wrong before you. So, has Daniel broken the law? The answer is, he has absolutely done so. It may be petty, it may be vile, it may be shameful, but what Darius has done is totally legal, according to the Medes and the Persians, He has tried to be an enlightened ruler. He has done everything according to law. Daniel was told, if you don't pray to Darius and nobody else for 30 days, uh, you're going to be thrown in the lion's den. Daniel went up to his room and prayed to God, as was his custom, with the window open. Now, open to Jerusalem, but the window was open. So, people are up there going, hey, look, Daniel's praying, and it's probably not to Darius. Has has Daniel broken the law? He has absolutely done so. When Darius comes and says, are you there? Daniel says, I am here. God has acted for me. I couldn't have done this on my own, and the reason God has acted for me is is because A, he saw me as innocent, and B, I did nothing wrong to you, O king. I did nothing wrong to you, and the evidence is God acted to protect me. Consider that in light of Romans chapter 1, verse 1 through 4. And and I, t- I took you on this journey a few lords days ago, but... When Paul summarizes the gospel before he gives it at length in Romans, in verse 1 through 4, this is what he says. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets and the holy scriptures, concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, And declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. So Paul goes on, but he has just said, Jesus was the descendant of David, but he was proved to be the Son of God by the Holy Spirit of holiness. How did the Holy Spirit prove that? He raised him from the dead. Jesus of Nazareth could not raise himself. The Holy Spirit raised him from the dead, which is really significant given everything Jesus of Nazareth has said. Jesus as Nazareth has said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. He has said on the last day of judgment, uh, all the sheep and the goats will be put before me, and I will judge in God's name. I am the issue of heaven or hell, I am the key, everything focuses on me, and then Jesus of Nazareth dies, and God does something. What does God do? He raises him from the dead. Would the God of holiness raise Jesus from the dead if Jesus had been simply egotistical and making all that up? would God do that? Because Jesus doesn't do it. He's a man. He's dead. The Holy Spirit is sent to validate everything Jesus has said by God raising him from the dead. God doesn't do that for heretics and liars. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And his father goes, yep, let me demonstrate that. I will raise him from the dead. I've got his back the same thing has just happened in the lion's den. Daniel says, I've done nothing wrong, though I have broken the law, but God has acted. And if I were guilty before him, or if I had done anything wrong to you, God would not have done this. God has Daniel's back, And you can't gainsay it because these lions are not cuddly. These are not cute little lions to show your four-year-old. These are lions who have been half-starved to death, and when these innocent victims are tossed into the, the lion's den, they act the way they naturally would act. They're starving to death, and they rip them apart. This is an absolute miracle that God has done and has testified An unjust law is no law. You told me to worship man rather than God. It's an unjust law. It's no law. I've done nothing wrong to you or to God. And God has acted by showing that's true by keeping me alive. Eighth, the Holy Spirit is showing us that the just shall live by faith can have some very solid this world applications verse twenty three uh, when Daniel finishes his uh, his talk and he 's brought out of the lion 's den, we read, so Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no injury whatsoever was found on him because he believed." In his God. We use the just shall live by faith as the foundation for our entire response to God, and we should, because we're taught that by the prophets and the apostles. The just shall live by faith. We sometimes forget that living includes in this world, and Daniel has just been delivered from lions, according to this, because he believes in God. Belief is the verb of the noun faith. Um, God showed his people live by faith, by what Daniel did. Now, God would be faithful to his covenant if Daniel had been eaten. And that can happen, and God is not unfaithful if it does. Uh, In the the Revelation in chapter 2, Uh, Jesus speaks directly to the church at Smyrna, and he says this, To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. I, I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan, Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. So you are about to suffer them, but don't be afraid of them. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, that you may have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, he who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. And then the book of Revelation defines the second death as the lake of fire and eternal torment. Uh, you'll never see that at all. You've overcome, you're not going to be hurt by that. But Jesus doesn't make any bones about the fact that you have to be faithful to death, and that may happen. In fact, um, when you get to the, the issue the, the passage I preached on last week briefly about the beast and the fact that the beast can make war against the saints, and it's given to them to kill some of them, uh, that comes to a head in verse 12 and 13 of chapter 14, where, kind of, kind of summing up, uh, this is what the apostle says. The beast overcoming the saints, killing some of them, uh, sweeping stars from heaven, that sort of thing. Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, "Write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow with them. That's often read at a funeral, and it's seen as very heartwarming. But in context, blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on, it's relating to the beast and the beast killing a bunch of us and being successful for a time. Daniel could have been thrown into the lion's den, and God could have, in his providence, allowed Daniel to be eaten, and it would still not have harmed Daniel. God would still be faithful to his covenant. Daniel would still have eternal life. But the righteous do live by faith, and God is active in this world. And Daniel prayed at his window when it was against the law, and he was thrown into the lion's den. And the just, this day at least, lived pretty practically by faith. God acted, and the righteous lived. God is on the throne. And that is the ultimate message that the prophet Daniel is trying to share with us. It's the message of Psalm 21, that those who will be God's enemies against Christ will not succeed. They will make a a plot that they cannot succeed at, because Christ will shoot them in the face with an arrow. It's the point that Nebuchadnezzar comes to, where he says... I have come to realize that God's kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and he does what he wants with everybody in heaven and he does what he wants with everybody on earth. He is the ruler and he sets up kings and he puts them down. Um, the just live by faith because neither number two nor number three actually rule the earth. Number one rules the earth and Daniel lived by faith because number one acted that day in a miracle to deliver him from death. God is on the throne. But God has said to the beast will be given for a time success at crushing the saints. Now they will be in God's presence, and they will rejoice in the Lord, and they will be blessed in heaven, but that happens and Daniel prayed at his window, knowing he would get seen, what are we to make of that? Well, we live in very pressured moments where the beast system uh, wants you to be unfaithful. And we spend a lot of time trying to figure out how not to get thrown in lion's den's. Those lion's dens can be loss of your job so that you starve and you end up in the street. The lion's den can be, uh, you will be thrown in prison. Uh, Ten years ago, or no, okay, a lot more than that, more like 20 years ago, I was talking with a colleague from the United Reformed Church in Canada, and he was at presbytery to bring uh, filial greetings, but he had just gotten out of four months of prison in Canada because... He had preached on God's Word, and the Canadian government said, no, that's, that's discriminatory. You can't say those things in church, and they had thrown him in prison. So he spent four months preaching to the prisoners and had just gotten out. But he had been to prison for preaching the Word. Um, that lion's den is there. Will we hide, will we close the window Will we do everything we can to avoid loss of job, uh, loss of social prestige, loss of family, relation? Will we we seek how we can go underground so as not to appear faithful? Because actually, we do a lot of talking about that. How can we avoid being thrown into the lion's den? Well, the truth is, sometimes you can't. God calls us to these moments. God is not surprised. God is on the throne. And there was no plan of Daniel's how to avoid this. Faithfulness was you pray to God. You make petition of God. And that's when lawfare happens. That's when they throw you into a lion's den. And that's when God sends his angel one way or another. But... Faithfulness does not promise safety. Not one place in Scripture does it promise safety. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you life, says Jesus. That's the promise. Life that cannot be harmed by the beast. Life that cannot be harmed by the capricious laws of Darius. Life that cannot be marred by... Uh, those going in agreement to bum rush the king be faithful unto death and i will give you life